Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to episode 212 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. Busy week in Hollywood here, Dan. Oh, goodness gracious. And you have been absolutely killing it on the picket lines and with all of your coverage. But not just you, all of our tremendous uh, THR colleagues, including uh, Katie Kilkenny, Gary Baum. Who else? Name some names. I don't want to leave anyone out. And I'm definitely Rick Porter, going to- James Hibbard, uh, Mia Galupo, Boris Kitt, uh, just every... Everyone on staff, it's been an all-hands approach. Obviously, this is uh, the WGA is on strike, in case you couldn't tell from what we've been talking about here. And yeah, everyone's been hitting the picket lines for coverage, talking to to writers. Um, Last night, uh, Katie and Gary were on the scene of the WGA's meeting at the Shrine here in LA, and I covered that remotely and talked to a ton of writers and showrunners who were inside the room. Um, about everything that went down. I mean, I'm heading back out to the picket lines. My goal is to be out there talking to people, if not every day, then as close to, to that as, as possible. I'm largely going to be at uh, Disney, which is around the corner from me, and here in Burbank, California, and Warner Brothers, which is also uh, kind of down the road a little bit more. But uh, yeah, there's a lot going on. And we are going to cover the strike extensively here at TV's Top 5. You know, a lot of showrunners are already kind of pulling back on doing press and promoting their shows, which is also going to make it challenging for us to have our regular showrunner spotlight or semi-regular showrunner spotlight segment. So instead, and you'll hear more about this later, but uh, we are introducing a new segment coming up in our fourth slot this week called, fittingly, Strike Zone. Pun in te- baseball pun intended. So you'll hear from writers actually on the picket line. So if you're, you're prepared to hear honking in the background of interviews and me stuttering all over the place. So, <laughs> yeah. But one of the topics in this week's podcast is surely going to be how things are being directly and immediately impacted. And that is an example of how we are going to be impacted. And it needs to be emphasized that we are among the very least important people to be impacted. Um, but that being said, if you wonder why some of your favorite showrunners are not appearing to uh, talk about their upcoming shows, well, 
there's a perfectly logical reason for it. And and why they're not tweeting in support of them, etc. Yes, the, WG, the WGA has been very specific about promotion in all forms. And while surely some people are, are finding workarounds involving multi-hyphenate distinctions and other various things, you will notice that most of your favorite showrunners on Twitter are not promoting their new TV shows anywhere. And that includes TV's Top 5 Podcast. Yes. Well, before we get into three different topics about the Writers Guild strike, we're going to lead off the way we usually do with the week's top headlines. With the week's top headlines that aren't the Writers Guild strike. Number one. Up first, the Ryan Murphy produced drama 911 has been renewed for a seventh season and is moving from its original home at Fox to ABC whose studio sibling, 20th Television, produces the series. And it's worth noting that this is one of the assets that Disney acquired when it spent more than $70 billion in purchasing assets that were part, formerly part of Fox. So the Fox Broadcasting Company used to own 911 because it was produced by its studio counterpart. The studio was sold to Disney now Fox had to pay a licensing fee to Disney to air the show that it once owned. And the licensing fee I hear for the flagship series was north of $9 million an episode. That's still reasonably cheap considering, or at least compared to some of the, the premium shows that we've seen on, on cable and streaming. But for a broadcast show, that's quite a bit. So instead, Fox decided to release the show. ABC instead picked it up. And Fox decided, you know what? Fuck it, let's keep 911 Lone Star. So you're going to have two shows of the same franchise airing across two different broadcast networks, Dan. Yeah, once again, <laughs> these are these are all things that are going to leave viewers kind of confused. Now, of course, viewers are smart people, but I've already expressed an almost weekly confusion about which parts of the Batman franchise are going to be on uh, HBO Max slash Max slash Amazon, etc. And that's also something where people will eventually get used to it. But yeah, it's it's strange. And also trying to figure out what Fox is at this exact moment is probably less clearly head scratching than what the CW is at this moment, but it's still head scratching. I mean, this is a very successful show for, for Fox and, and for it now to be moving to ABC, but for half of the limbs to be staying around at Fox is just well, weird. We should note that, or I should note that nine one one Lone Star, the per episode cost on that one ranges for, for between six and seven million per. So, not as expensive, but still, comparatively speaking, cheaper than the flagship series. So, I'm I'm really uh, going to be curious how the the two different broadcast networks work together on this franchise, or if they will at, at all work together. Because I mean, there have been crossovers of shows across different networks because they were all part of, of similar franchises. Or there were, I think there was that New Girl Bones crossover at one point that they did, right? But, I mean, I'm just trying to remember that. Was it Bones? Was it was no, New Girl it was and something weird? Yes, it was. It was Brooklyn Nine Nine, which makes oh, Brooklyn Nine Nine, which yeah. makes significantly that, yeah. more sense than right because <laughs> Bones. Yeah, because let's see. Wait, New Girl aired on what was that? ABC. What, it aired oh, on it Fox, was Fox. Right? Yeah, New Girl aired, aired on Fox, and it was owned and it was owned by Fox. Brooklyn Nine Nine used to air on Fox, but it was owned by Universal. Oh my God, my head already hurts. I. 
this really just does speak to the overall landscape <laughs> and how it's everything. Everyone wants to save money, especially on broadcast. We've talked about this in the past. Bob Hart's Abishola just cut cut all of its series regulars except for the the two title characters because not they didn't cut them. They just downgraded them from regular to recurring because it's cheaper. The cast of Blue Bloods, the creators of Blue Bloods took a 25 percent pay cut to keep the show on the air. That show employs a couple hundred people behind the scenes, right? This is the the new world order that we're living in on a broadcast because these shows are too expensive for the networks to to continue paying the licensing fee and all the costs and everything else associated with them for the diminishing returns that they're getting from them, especially if they don't own the streaming rights. And that's the case here with 911 and Fox. And I assume that some of our, our smarter-eared listeners are probably going, what Leslie was being confused by was the fact that Zoe Deschanel guest starred on Bones opposite sister Emily for an episode. Wait, and they're so- sisters? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been a long week for you already, hasn't it, Leslie? Maybe. I mean, I guess it's I guess as we're recording it, it's Thursday, which means that the week is coming towards an end. So maybe Oof. maybe they'll be recharging time at some point. But yes, uh, so so that I is probably. St- I think I'm still hungover for my birthday last weekend, Dan. Let's be and, honest. And a happy birthday to you again. Um, Thank you, friend. But yeah, and you know, you did mention Fox and and the, the network's new direction, and it's not so new anymore. It's been been the case since the Disney sale. But what we do know is that the, the network also ordered a John Wells produced Hawaii set lifeguard drama that was previously developed for HBO Max. It it is produced and owned by Warner Brothers Discovery, where John Wells is under an overall deal. But Fox boarded this as a co production, which I'm guessing HBO Max was like. This doesn't really fit in with what we want to do. So Warner Brothers took it out, found it at home for it at Fox. But Fox said, yeah, we want to own a piece of this, too, because, as I've said on the show, ownership matters. But in terms of Fox's new direction, they've bulked up like all the other broadcast networks on reality, which is, again, largely strike proof and, and animation. Because it does own Bento Box, which is the big animation company behind uh, Bob's Burgers. So when you own that kind of thing and you can have success, as I've said on the show before, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Speaking of both shows on the move and strike protection, Dancing with the Stars, which, of course, rather famously hopped from ABC to Disney Plus sometime last year, is returning to ABC for its 32nd season uh, after, I guess, it was only one season of the show being on Disney Plus for season 31. The series will air live on both ABC and Disney Plus, and episodes will be dropping next day on Hulu, so you'll have lots and lots and lots of ways to watch stars such as they are attempting to dance. Yeah, and say it with me here, Dan. Strike protection! You didn't say it with me. Sorry, I I figured it was probably fine to just let you have that one. Yeah, Um, that's fair too. But yeah, so so that, look, it was a a significant move to Disney Plus and... Designed to bulk up the streamer and bring some immediacy to it. And to somewhat alter the demos as well. We discussed that at the time, that it was sort of a way of of bridging out and and reaching additional quadrants, or maybe not quadrants, because... The quadrants, Demos, tend to, quadrants. That's, uh, I think the I think the quadrants they tend to <laughs> people tend to be focusing on quadrants that are younger skewing quadrants. This would be an older skewing show, but anyway, they tried to broaden out the audience, but now they're going to just give people more way to, ways to watch a show that some people still watch. And giving ABC some insurance in case there's fallout from the writer strike and some of the scripted shows that they usually kick off in the fall can't 
premiere because they don't have scripts. And, and if you don't have scripts, you can't film episodes. And here we are again. Up next, speaking of reality shows, the CW has landed F-Boy Island and is developing a spinoff, F-Girl Island, after the flagship series was canceled at HBO Max. Dan, you want to say it with me here this time? One, no, two, I really three. don't. Strike protection. I'm not playing your reindeer games. Reindeer? Who's talking about reindeer? It's May. I don't know. I'm just... Well, actually, no. So, uh, we're, we're halfway to Christmas or something. I know I keep getting promoted some... Christmas? Halfway, Hanukkah. halfway too. Well, maybe we're halfway to Hanukkah too. Anyway, Anyways. yes, uh, F Boy Island uh, definitely CW is is making for a muddled brand. I mean, it's not F Boy Island. Next star. Can we? When are we? When do we stop calling it the CW? And, and when is that going to be rebranded? Because it's no longer going to be a reflection of CBS, the C and CW, and Warner Brothers, the W. In, in, it's in it's CW. a good question, and I don't know honestly what the logistics are. I mean, honestly, everyone knows that the arts and entertainment, that A&E hasn't been arts and entertainment for a long time, that that TLC hasn't cared about learning for a long time. So people are accustomed to the things that things used to stand for no longer being the things they stand for. But on the other hand, yes, at, at some point, people will be like, what does this all have to do with, quote unquote, the CW? And the answer will consistently be, the CW is not what it once was, but yeah. And, and the thing is, uh, and we talked about the CW's new direction oh, under the, next star on last week's episode. Too. Yeah. We've, we've talked about it. Plenty. Acquisitions unscripted. Yeah. You've heard this. I'm a broken record. Now. Continuing along with other news. Netflix has renewed sweet tooth for a third and final season. Fortunately, it's already begun. It's already completed production. So yay. Um, <laughs> And Netflix has. That's actually pretty smart. Actually, when we, when you stop and think about it, sure. this is filming seasons back to back without without the benefit of a hiatus. You keep the writers' room going. It's a lot cheaper. Indeed, uh, Netflix has renewed The Diplomat for a second season. You can go back uh, two weeks and listen to our interview with Deborah Kahn, who talked about hopes for the second season, which it was always going to get a second season. So whatever. <laughs> but also, yay, I like The Diplomat, so glad to have that. The streamer has also picked up 10 episodes of the drama The Corpse, or The Core, C-O-R-P-S, not to be confused with C-O-R-P-S-E, following a gay teen who enlists in the Marines. It is executive produced by Norman Lear. Netflix has revealed that season two of Ryan Murphy's Monster Anthology series will focus on the Menendez brothers, if it Seems to you like we just had a limited series on the Menendez brothers from a super producer. Uh, that's because we did, though it was actually apparently it was like six years ago, which in television time, you know, who knows? In any case, though, this is not a story that really needed anyone to shine a light on it. I, I feel as if there are other monsters in the world who maybe haven't had their miniseries treatment already. But whatever, Ryan Murphy, Ryan Murphy going to do whatever Ryan Murphy going to do. Yep. In other renewal news, Apple has handed out an early fourth season pickup to the morning show. Yes, that show is still on. <sighs> Strange, but whatever. Uh, in casting news, Noah Hawley's FX take on Alien has landed its first cast member with uh, Don't Worry Darling actress and daughter of Kyle Sidney Chandler set to star. That is news that is brand new information to me. Is she really Kyle Chandler's daughter? She is. And if you and it's sort of funny if you 
<laughs> if you look at her from the right angles or in the right light, you can absolutely see a family resemblance. Um, Did Kyle Chandler and Noah Hawley ever work together on anything? Uh, not that I instantly can not remember, but head, that doesn't no. necessarily mean. Yeah. But anyway, anyway yes. And, uh, <laughs> Sydney Chandler, daughter of Kyle. And in news that's exciting, at least to me, and wrapping up headlines here, Universal Content Productions is teaming with Dodger great Fernando Valenzuela to make a scripted series based on his life and career. And Dan, the, the project is just doesn't have a network or platform attached, is already kind of drawing some heat because, well, neither of the writers attached to it are Latino. Well, I mean, that's that's not ideal. And somebody should be giving some consideration to that, given what Fernando and Fernando mania meant to Mexico, what it meant to the Hispanic community of Los Angeles. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what it meant to the Dodgers. Yeah. Yeah, and Fernando is involved. Uh, he will be a, a non-writing executive producer, so that that's good. And Major League Baseball is actually involved as well. So, if you, as Vin Scully once said, if you have a sombrero, throw it to this guy. Indeed. Number two. Up second, here we go. It's official. The Writers Guild is on strike for the first time in 15 years. The last strike during late 2007 and 2008 lasted for 100 days and focused on the quote-unquote internet. Remember that, Dan? It was when streaming was in its infancy and Netflix was still a DVD-by-mail company. This time, and this segment, is going to go over what's at stake here and what the key issues are. So as we record this, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers has responded now to the proposals that the, the WGA laid out late Monday night when it, when it called for members to officially hit the picket lines on Tuesday. So what we know from reviewing everything is the key points really have become residuals, preserving the writer's room, and ending the practice of so-called mini-rooms, plus viewership transparency, Dan. Writers want ratings data, and not, as I like to call it, an algebraic equation. Other things that, that are that are becoming increasingly important in this round of, of negotiations are protections regarding the use of artificial intelligence and span protection, span being the length of time writers are on a show. So the the WGA said in its its proposals would gain writers an estimated four hundred and twenty nine million a year, with the AMPTP's offer coming in at about eighty six million annually, or forty eight percent of that, which is just from the the wage floor increases. So there's a lot to to unpack here, Dan, and I'm gonna get to go ahead and tease the strike zone segment that's coming up. Uh, in our fourth segment this week, because you'll hear a lot more about AI and you're going to hear a ton more about mini rooms in the coming days and weeks and probably months as the strike continues. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and everyone should check out all of the video interviews you've been doing, whether you hear snippets of them in a later segment of this podcast or not, because it's been interesting to hear people. And it's been interesting to just get a, a perspective on the different priorities because everyone not shockingly has a slightly different idea of what their most important thing is but definitely in your interviews and in conversations and on twitter and whatever it's been there there have been a few things that have come up repeatedly the residual issue is obviously going to be i don't know if it's 
everybody's number one thing, but probably close because people have been posting their one and two cent checks from various different streaming shows. And those are kind of tragic because lots of writers for years were able to live on their residual checks. If something aired as a repeat or aired in syndication, they would get in some a cases sizable check. A, a solid chunk of money. And now that broadcast television has largely eliminated repeats in general, and, and now that streaming has become this impossible to to parse world of success and failure, people are being <laughs> concerned by the amount of money that they're seeing off of it. And yeah, there yeah. was one writer that tweeted this morning as we record this is Thursday morning. They tweeted an image, a partial image anyway, of the check that they got. It was a, a check for residuals f for streaming from the two episodes of Jane the Virgin that they wrote, and the check was in the total of three cents. I think I think that was what I was referring to. That was probably yeah. the tweet. I mean, there's I a lot of people doing that. Yeah, and, and, and that's not good. It's not sustainable. And then similarly, lots of people are heavily emphasizing the mini rooms, and uh, definitely that's been a thing that's come up multiple times uh, in our recent interviews on the podcast with various showrunners that people... It's hard for people to survive when the rooms are of less duration, contain fewer people, and are for fewer episodes within those contexts. So, And there's not yeah. even a guarantee that the work they're doing is going to be seen because the, the practice of mini rooms, it's called basically a pre-development or a pre-green light room where you're developing scripts and you're breaking an entire season of a show and then you turn it into the network or streamer or studio, and, the, and then they decide, like, mm, maybe we shouldn't pick this up. So you get half the pay for doing a, an insane amount of work in, in a, a very small small window, and there's no guarantee that it's even that anyone's ever going to see it. And then people are mentioning the AI thing, and obviously for good reason, and that the AMPTP has put out a, a statement, and, you know, they, with their version of of how the negotiations have gone. Uh, the Writers Guild was much more forward this year to their credit in making sure that everyone had a sense of both what the requests were and what the responses were. And I think that that's probably a very smart response to some questions about communication, lack of transparency, et cetera. A lot of this was stuff that, uh, that Sean Ryan talked about excellently, just about how people are supposed to get information about things and who is talking to the media and who isn't talking to the media. And I think it probably does behoove everybody to <laughs> that if somebody's out there putting this information into the public, that everybody probably should be. Uh, and just with the AI, I think it's so tough because the perspective that the studios are going to go with is that nobody knows where it's going and therefore it's hard to respond to. Yeah, this was a big bone of contention at the WGA's meeting here in Los Angeles on when on Wednesday night with which sources said Chris Kaiser, who's uh, on the negotiating committee for the guild, set, revealed that the studios didn't really want to engage on that because they want to use it. And, you know, here's I'm going to read from the document that the WGA put out here regarding artificial intelligence. What they're proposing is, quote, regulate the use of artificial intelligence on MBA covered projects. That's the minimum basic agreement covered projects. AI can't write or rewrite literary material, can't be used as source material, and MBA covered material can't be used to train AI. The Writers Guild said that the group 
the AMPTP, which represents the studios and streamers, rejected that proposal and countered by offering annual meetings to discuss advancements in technology. And the AMPTP's statement on Thursday morning now, I'm, it's kind of lengthy, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and read this quickly, but here it is. Quote, we're creative companies and we value the work of creatives. The best stories are original, insightful, and often come from people's own experiences. AI raises hard, important, creative, and legal questions for everyone. For example, writers want to be able to use this technology as part of their creative process without changing how credits are determined, which is complicated given AI material can't be copyrighted. So it's something that requires a lot more discussion, which we've committed to doing. Also, it's important to note that the current WGA agreement already defines a, quote, writer to exclude any, quote, corporate or impersonal purveyor of literary material, meaning that only a, quote, person can be considered a writer and enjoy the terms and conditions of the basic agreement. For example, AI-generated material would not be eligible for writing credit. So... I, I've, I, we've had this document for about 20 minutes now, and without having spoken with anyone about this yet, this kind of just sounds like it's, we know we can't give this writing credit. We're not saying we're going to give this AI writing credit, but we're also not willing to say that we're never going to use AI. It's completely disingenuous because as everybody knows. And, and, you know, we, we had an amusing little story, uh, where we ran, um, a, where we asked chat GPT to t tell the kids about our little story, Leslie. Yes. We asked chat GPT to do a, to, to write a scene from NBC's 30 rock, which is of course an, in a show about the making inner workings of a TV show to write a scene from 30 rock in which the writers went on strike and then we asked Dan to review the results. And it's up on THR.com, uh, definitely worth a read. Um, and what the results were, if you ask me, and, I, and again, I'm not a critic, but it, it's AI doesn't do humor, right? It's bland and cliched. And it's, you know, it's what every like high schooler who wants to write a script is would probably do. And honestly, high schoolers would probably do better. Let's let's say like this is like second graders would turn in, you know, saying this weekend I had fun. I love my parents very much. That's the kind of script that the AI produced. Well, but what but what but what it did do and what the technology is able to do at this point and what the studios and also writers both know that the technology is able to do is that the technology is able to give the shape of things. And I, I think that is where the AMPTP statement is completely disingenuous because I don't think the Writers Guild's concern is about AI being used to produce scripts and for scripts to be credited as some artificial intelligence site that we plugged in information into. The concern is, why would you have a eight to 10 episode? Why would you have an eight to 10 person writer's room breaking stories, arcing things out, whatever, if you can plug something into an AI system and get the shape of a script and then give it to three writers to buff it up and add punchlines. And I think that's where the concern comes from. The writer's perspective is that if you can have a computer that would give you basically an outline and the AI, I think, is at the point where it can give you a hack uh, and hackneyed outline. I think that is what we saw with the with the 30 Rock script is that if you could hand that 
to Tina Fey and Robert Carlock. They would take it and then they could make it into something. But in the process, you would lose, well, you'd lose the actual inspiration in creating structuring and uh, storytelling and the ability to be surprising because an AI can be random, but I don't know if an AI can be surprising. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's sort of, and that's the thing that the AMPTP isn't acknowledging at all in their response on the AI is they're kind of pushing it along and suggesting that it's actually the writers who would like to be able to use AI for structuring purposes. And the truth is that probably, yes, some are or will or whatever, because it's it's a workaround. It's it's another way of cutting corners. And and if you're creating it's look, it's the same conversation that journalists are having to have with uh with this stuff as well, where, you know, BuzzFeed saying that they were going to do artificial intelligence based content and whatever and firing most of their editorial staff. It it's it is complicated and it is something that's forward looking. But also, if you simply wait and say we're going to just wait and sit it out for another three years and maybe things will be more clear, there's no way on earth the writers end up coming out end up coming out ahead in that. So that's like yeah. from the last strike going back and saying, yeah, we don't know what exactly what the future of the internet is and how that's going to affect our content. So we're not going to give you anything now, but we'll we'll continue to talk about it. Exactly, knowing if, that the internet is literally where we are today. If you wait for David Zaslov's first priority to be a staff writer on uh, Abbott Elementary, that day will never come. And so either you say this is a thing that we need to step out and have something tangible on the books, knowing that it will need to be renegotiated in three years. Of course it will. You're not. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the minimum permanent. basic agreement expires every three years. And that's and that's there for a reason, because at this point, the technology is advancing a lot faster than anyone knows how to deal with it and how it's going to affect them. So. Anyway, there's there's so much more to get into, but I think we're going to save some of that so you can hear it firsthand from from writers about you know where they can share their their experiences. So we've got four of them coming up in uh, in just after this next segment. But uh, before we get into our showrunners and voices from the from the picket lines, we're going to talk about what's already been impacted by the strike and what could be next. Number three. You might recall way, way, way back, way, way, way back in 2020 and in, uh, in March and April and May, where this podcast had to have basically weekly segments on here's what's shutting down because of COVID. Here's who's attempting to do what because of COVID. Here's who's workaround because of COVID. Here's what award shows are still happening because of COVID. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to be doing that for the foreseeable future as we examine where things stand in the wake of the ongoing strikes. So so yeah, what let's let's go back and forth on some of the things that we know and don't know regarding where things stand. Well, it's definitely called the writer's strike for a reason and there's a and guess what the first thing to go down is, Dan, writers rooms. So obviously that's what's going on. The first thing to happen is we've got most writers room for scripted live action. And I believe a lot of animated shows have shut down with the strike first threatening broadcast program. So the timing of, of this strike, it, we should say the last strike in 2007, 2008, 
that lasted for 100 days. That started in November, which, as you, our keen listeners know, that's the middle of the broadcast season, just before midseason. So that truncated a number of broadcast programs, including Big Bang Theory, among others. This year, obviously, the strike is starting in the beginning of May, when most of the broadcast shows have already completed production. Some have even already aired their, their season finales. But we know that they have a summer hiatus going and we there were a small handful of shows, Abbott Elementary, Quantum Leap, La Brea, Night Court, etc., that stayed in, that continued to keep their writer's room open so that they could pound out scripts for next season, the 23-24 broadcast season that starts in September. So if they've got scripts that are finished, they could actually go into production on those, of course, provided there's no uh, strike by the Directors Guild and by the, the Screen Actors Guild. Both of their contracts expire June 30th. So we are facing a summer of labor crisis in the entertainment industry. So this time, if the strike does last 100 days plus, as many people that I've spoken with feel that it will, it could very well impact the beginning of the broadcast television season. Cable and streaming, that's another story. And they can go back into production uh, with the with the friendly reminder, as you no doubt have seen many of your writing friends say, that if an actor is on set and decides to basically rewrite their line on the fly, as maybe or maybe nope. not happens... That's scabbing. Uh, so sorry, Jenna Ortega. You better join your showrunners out on the picket line too, because uh, if you rewrote a lot of those scenes, you're not allowed to do that again. Yeah, they. Uh, <laughs> some not people, right now, anyway. Some people were excited with the reports that uh, the second season of House of the Dragon was able to can just continue to shoot, and other people were pointing out, yeah, that's that's going to cause problems. So, so everyone yeah. will need to keep that in mind. Um, yeah. I got back yesterday from reporting on the picket lines and the, about 20 minutes later, um, we had a knock on the door and it was someone from Disney. As I said, you know, Disney films, uh, a lot of stuff on the street behind where we live. And it was a representative from Disney saying, you know, with a filming notice saying that they were going to film Gronish on the street behind us next, uh, you know, uh, next week. And I'm just like, you're, that's like literally down the street from around the corner from Disney animation. And yesterday there were throngs of writers using that street to walk around the entire block as they picketed a huge chunk of Disney. So, you know, it's like these productions, it's not going to be long, at least from my vantage point, uh, that I think that, that some of these protests are going to start impacting actual production on some of these shows. And obviously if there is some, uh, uh, some other labor issues around the director's guild and the actor's branch, there could be a lot of trouble coming up. And there surely will be. So continuing along, uh, late night shows have gone dark. So that includes Jimmy Kimmel, The Late Show, Tonight, Late Night, Bill Maher, John Oliver, and The Daily Show. They have all shut down. Yeah, Saturday Night Live, the same is true. They also scrapped its remaining three live shows, which were set to be hosted by Pete Davidson, Kieran Culkin, and Jennifer Coolidge. Man, those would have been fun. They would have been funny. CBS's The Talk has gone dark amid the strike, as the show does indeed employ a writing staff. Other daytime shows, including ABC's The View and the syndicated Live and Tamron Hall from Disney, are expected to go on as usual as they only employ a small number of writers, and that's not expected to affect production. The syndicated shows The Kelly Clarkson Show and The Drew Barrymore Show have both wrapped and have a bank of originals from which to draw from. 
Next up, too, Dan, it's effect already starting to affect Emmy season. Indeed. Uh, for your consideration, Emmy campaigning events are beginning to fall apart uh, with events including John Mulaney and others being canceled. So we're going to we're going to see it comes down again to promotion and who's allowed to promote what and where and and who's in support of, of the guild and who's not. It is also worth noting that <laughs> there's a lot of money that goes on in this town involving FYC events and FYC campaigns. And so certainly some people and some venues are going to feel the pinch almost immediately on that one. So, yeah. Speaking of being pinched, uh, whatever the MTV is awarding this weekend is basically in jeopardy at this point because host Drew Barrymore has just dropped out. Uh, it's unclear as we record this if the show will, as they say, go on. Uh, as for the Tonys, that's still full steam ahead as of uh, press time, Dan. As of press time, though, Drew Barrymore dropping out of the MTV thing happened very, very, very recently. So uh, so it would not at all surprise me if the Tonys are right around Scrambling. the same right around the same corner, because I just at a certain point, in, especially in the early going, no one is going to want to be the first one to come out and say, sure, show must go on. This is more important than uh, than Guild Solidarity. So at least in the early going, everybody wants to be on board. Yeah. But, you know, in, in terms of the larger landscape and and how, how the strike is impacting everything, you know, to your point, it does feel like the early days of, of COVID when everything, including sports, came to a sudden halt. And not at all like the 2007 strike that began in the middle of the broadcast season. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And if does, this does stretch more than 100 days from the last one, it's going to be really interesting to see if there is an impact for streaming and cable. Because as we've said, for 212 episodes now, we are in the peak TV landscape. There's a ridiculous amount of content you know, look, I, I know my own viewing habits during the, the quarantine stage of the pandemic. I watched a lot of stuff that I wasn't able to get to originally. Finally watched Schitt's Creek. I finally watched uh, Brockmire. There's so much content that, that's out there that people haven't seen. Plus, we know that the streamers and, and a lot of cable networks have a, a backlog of stuff, not just uh, unscripted content that hasn't aired that they've been really savvy and, and stocked up on. But also on the scripted side, some of this stuff like, you know, Apple delayed the after party so they would still have content in the summer, although I'm sure that was equal parts because of the strike and because of a crowded Emmy, Emmy season. But will Netflix run out of content? I mean, we were talking about this the other day when we were doing our planning for the show, Dan, and you were saying that during the, the thick of, of the, the pandemic, you never ran out of shows to review, out of new shows to review. And... Also, keep in mind, obviously, that the pandemic was not something that anyone could future proof. And so exactly. And so it, no one was able to go, OK, we need <laughs> we need to have let lots us buy 100 acquisition shows. Let it, let's get a bunch of uh, unscripted shows, too, because because we know that the world is about to shut down for six months. No one knew that. Whereas in this case, lots of people lots of networks and whatever were moving forward and it's it's kind of one one of the hilarious things uh i believe i believe lacy rose our colleague had a had a story with with several producers uh complaining about the number of scripts that had been dumped on them in advance of this um 
But I mean, that's what writers were doing leading in the lead up to yeah. this. They were trying to finish as much as they could before the quote unquote pencils down. And so and so they did. And that means that things are going to that there's there's going to be more. And we've already begun to see all of the stories uh, beginning to trickle out about who is and isn't going to be affected immediately. I think several people yesterday ran a story that AMC is not going to be affected uh, in 2023, that they have all of their programming lined up or something. AMC to, only airs, like only even has a handful I of scripted shows to begin it with. It was just the thing. It was just the thing that went through my now, Twitter if, feed. If Netflix said that and said, you know, we're fine, we won't have a shutdown. We, we won't be impacted by the content, you know, pipeline by a lack of writers and new content coming in until 2026. I mean, it's who has the leverage here, Dan? Does the guild or do the studios? I don't think I don't think we know. And 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 for how long is the is the question? And and again, as you said, I mean, the longer it goes on, I think that that will shift to the writers. But in the immediacy, in the immediate future, just it doesn't really feel like there's a threat. I mean. Uh, Paramount Global CEO Bob Backish said this morning in their dismal earnings report, I mean, the stock tumbled like 20% after, afterwards, but said that, th that, you know, he was quoted as saying that consumers won't feel the effect of this for some time. And I, and I don't think he's wrong. Oh, I, he's definitely not wrong. I think we, I think we know that. I think we know that there is programming that is in the can and that the programming in the can is going to, is going to be around for at least the the immediate future it will there will be there will be months and months and months before we begin noticing anything i think probably after we get past may when obviously everyone's priority is getting things out for the emmy contention run and so there is less reason to have programming in june and july and so it would not surprise me if if it is clear that this is going to go on for a few months, if a lot of release dates that are tentatively for June and July, if people are saying, OK, let's 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 pull back, let's maybe save that for August, that for September, et cetera. And, and that would be that would be reasonable. It's also not our job to give uh, <laughs> to, to give studios and streamers ideas of how they should prolong their limited amount of uh <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I'm looking at, you know, look, there, we have the, our very handy TV show premiere date guide that's up on the site that our colleague Rick Porter updates daily because that's how frequently we, we hear new premiere dates are being announced. But I'm looking at the June schedule and there's a shit ton of scripted stuff, including Swagger, The Bear, and just like that, Black Mirror, um, the final episodes of Manifest, the final season of Never Have I Ever, The Idol, the new Sam Levinson show with The Weeknd. Uh, you know, there's the new season of Cruel Summer. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. I mean, there's a, 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 and I'm and I'm only to June 11th scrolling through the list. You've got later than you know that month. You've got Outlander, Secret Invasion, which is Marvel, right? Like you know the final first part of the final season of Grownish, The Witcher, Warrior, and you know when you get into July, it's obvious it's a lot lighter. But then you've got. Uh, the horror of Dolores Roach, um, a lot of unscripted stuff, the after party, um, an animated show, and then uh, Twisted Metal on Peacock. And that's that's July. So, I mean, they're still set pretty much for June. But the the question, Dan, will be to see if any of these shows do wind up moving or getting pushed back. I, I would safely guarantee that that some of the, that one or two or three of them will that that somebody will say, OK, we can we can go a week or two without a program, an original programming if it will help push things back. And that's, that's just how, 
that's how it has to go. But of course, again, summer will always ha- and has traditionally lately been a a place for reality programming. And so that's that's where it is. And there's also going to be less scrambling in some cases, not all, but in some cases, the the various networks and streamers that have sports deals will be able to get some of the sports stuff that will and that'll keep the lights on, which was not the case in yeah. the early days of the pandemic. So but that's also getting more expensive, too. Sure. So, yeah. Anyway, I digress. Up next. OK, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Number four. You heard me talk about it before, but this week we are launching a new segment, Time to the Labor Unrest, called Strike Zone, in which I hit the picket lines and interview WGA members and showrunners about the central issues at play as the Guild seeks a new minimum basic agreement. This week, we've got four short interviews that paint a detailed picture about some of the core issues that reflect the sentiment among the rank and file of the WGA. My first interview is with Yvette Foy, whose credits include First Wives Club and Netflix's Raising Dion. While walking the picket line in front of the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, California, she spoke about how many rooms have impacted her and her fears of how studios and streamers use artificial intelligence. The most important issues that have affected me and most of the writers that I know are uh, the invention of mini rooms, which is where uh, studios request a few amount of writers to crank out the amount of work that that would have normally been done in much more time. They pay you less, they ask you to work for less, and they ask a smaller amount of writers to do more work. So essentially doing double the work in half the time. For half the pay? For half the pay, yes. And have you been personally affected by mini rooms? I have. Um, what, it do- what it also does is it makes it harder for you to get consistent work because you're constantly scrounging for more work because your jobs are six weeks long or 10 weeks long versus 20 weeks long or 30 weeks long where you can work the entire year. The uh, studios have been unwilling to even engage about AI. Are you worried about that? I'm, I'm concerned that they're unwilling to even discuss it because that says to me that they have probably actively been pursuing it. Um, everyone, it's no secret about ChatGPT. And if you are unwilling to discuss it, it says to me that you're acting like you're not concerned about it. And if we're concerned about it, you should absolutely, absolutely be concerned about it. 
how long are you prepared to be out here to be to be on strike? And have you made any? Uh, have you had any thought or consideration about doing any other, picking up any other work outside of, of writing for television in the interim? Um, I have not. Uh, I'm prepared to be out here as long as we need to be out here to get what we deserve to get the things that we have been working hard for to make a way for other people to stay in this industry, to get in this industry, and to make a career for this. I didn't move from New Orleans, Louisiana to be out here in LA and to not be able to make a living. What I do is important. It provides content and it makes sure that the studios make a lot of money. So I should be able to make a living to do this. I will be out here as long as it takes for them to come to a reasonable agreement which is all we ask is that they come to a reasonable agreement. I've saved my money to make sure that I can be out here and I will cut back as much as possible to make sure that I can stand out here and strike. Leslie also caught up with two-time Emmy winner and two-time TV's top five guest, Brett Goldstein, and his fellow shrinking writer, Zach Bornstein, who is also a WGA captain. Why are you guys out here today? Uh, I think it's time writers were paid a fair wage. It seems a real shame that all the good stuff that is made is made by writers, all these people, and that there are writers genuinely struggling to afford to live. It just seems insane. Yeah. Need, really need writers. I mean, before this, before Ted Lasso, yeah. were you affected by any of the deal points that you guys are currently negotiating for as, as, as right, members of the WGA? Whether it's uh, the, the low residuals or mini rooms, yeah, or I mean, for you, you're on Ted Lasso, right? The big yeah. one, the biggest show that helped define Apple as a streaming yeah. platform. Have you been? Do you feel like you've been fairly compensated as a writer, specifically, not just as an exec producer and a star? I think all the writers could be looked after a lot better. Um, what about mini rooms? Have you guys ever been been affected by that, or the lack of compensation, or, or the lack of? Uh, transparency about ratings? I mean, Ted Lasso is a monster hit. Do you know how well it does? I know nothing. Which is crazy. Like, how are you supposed to get, as an executive producer, you're supposed to get back-end points, or you used to under the former models, but now, because you don't know how well it does, do you feel like you're being fairly compensated for that show? As I say, I think all the writers could be doing it. And that isn't just on our service. If these people do incredible work, as writers, we want to be able to take part in the success of the shows. On day two of the strike, I caught up with another former TV's top five guest, Why the Last Man showrunner Eliza Clark, who has been a Guild member since 2009 and who opened up about the existential crisis the WGA is facing right now and how the industry's consolidation and lack of viewership transparency is creating a confusing and uneven playing field. I'm out here picketing for the future of our business. Um, I think that it's important, you know, a lot of these issues affect me personally, but I think even more than that, this is about uh, creating a future where being a writer can continue to be a career long after I have retired done. (laughs) And, you know, Why the Last Man was a very uh, beloved show, obviously based on a big IP, the, the comic book. You know, that took a long time to develop. Obviously, there was the showrunner change, which is when you were brought in. But with when you work on a show that's in development for so long, does the pay structure, how did that, did that affect you? The fact that, you know, 
now with some of these premium shows take years of development before they're on the air? Um, well, you know, I was on an overall deal, so that was okay for me. But what I will say is that I think that uh, the fact that Disney bought Fox and that all these companies are kind of cannibalizing one another um, means that you never, it's a moving target who you're working for um, and what the metrics are and what the numbers are. You have no idea sort of where you are um, in the in the grand scheme of their shows. Um, so I, I, I personally, I think that the fact that we were, uh, we were part of a bigger corporation and the corporation just get, kept getting bigger and bigger uh, led to the cancellation. And what are your immediate plans uh, now that you're on, on strike? Are you at a point where you're going to need to get a secondary job or have you heard of assistants who are having to do that, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I know tons of people who are really scared, who, um, who have already been struggling for uh, months prior to the strike, for years. Um, this is an existential fight. Uh, my immediate plans are to fight like hell, to be out here every day with my, uh, my patrons. And... Finally, yet another former TV's Top 5 guest as Stephen Falk, who joined us in episode 202 in February to discuss Apple's Hello Tomorrow, chatted with Leslie about when and why he became fired up about the strike. How worried about you about how, about how long this strike could possibly last? I don't know. I mean, I thought I kind of understood game theory and understood that, you know, they knew what the number they're going to eventually have to get to is, give or take. Um, but the the lack of response, lack of, of actual uh, cogent and respectful uh, response that came out today really kind of worried me. I, I'm not particularly worried about how long the strike is going to go, but um, because I have a... I have a healthy respect for the Writers Guild and their resolve, so I'm not actually worried, but I am worried that the the studios aren't taking us seriously, and I wasn't even that mad, honestly, until I woke up this morning, and I wasn't reading, I mean, yes, some of the stuff from the side of the writers, but really just how the, or at least the, how the proposals were responded to by the MPTP really, really pissed me off, and I think they, I think that's that that's really dumb to strengthen our resolve like that on day one. If you're a showrunner or a studio and streaming executive who would like to join us for a strike zone conversation, please email us at TV's top five. That's a numeral five at THR.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at, at snootit where my DMS are open and stay tuned to THR.com for the latest news and coverage. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Pete Davidson returns to the NBCU fold in Peacock's Bupkis. Apple debuts the futuristic drama Silo. Hulu has season two of Taste the Nation, one of your favorites, Dan. And FX's Class of 09. Netflix returns to the world of Bridgerton with prequel series Queen Charlotte from creator and showrunner Shonda Rhimes. And Dan, tell us what you got and should... Viewers really enjoy all of this new content while it lasts because, I don't know, we just talked about this, but I don't know. In the in the immediate future, I think you're okay. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't think we're yet at the point at which I'm telling anyone you should savor this. You should you should definitely make the first season of Bupkis last 
four months in order to have more bupkis for you. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think we're there yet. I think people can currently still enjoy TV and be comforted in the notion that there's entirely too much of it and uh, you can't get to everything. I, for example, this week did not get to the new episodes of the other two. I'm going to try watching a couple of them tonight ahead of my newsletter that goes out on Friday. Um, now see this. You can subscribe various places on THR. Uh, I also didn't get anywhere near episodes of Queen Charlotte, which I've heard some good things about, including from our colleague Angie Hahn. Uh, I made the decision last night that I could have either watched a couple episodes of Queen Charlotte or I could finish the first season of Bupkis so as to be able to give a sense of what the shape of that Pete Davidson show is. And I decided probably it was of more value, at least for purposes of the podcast, to check in and see what the second half of Bupkis was like. Uh, so might as well start there. Uh, Bupkis was created by Pete Davidson, Judah Miller, and uh, David Suris, and it's now up on Peacock, and it is a semi-kind of autobiographical comedy about departed SNL star Pete Davidson going into both his exhaustive dating history and his history with substance abuse, but also his his biography, including his relationship with his mother, who's played by Edie Falco here. And um, other cast regulars include Joe Pesci playing Pete Davidson's grandfather, who has cancer and adds a little bit of dramatic weight there. So um the the first thing that has to be said, and this is this is very, very important if you're actually tuning in to Bubkiss, if you're actually curious, the pilot of Bubkiss is awful. And and that upsets me. How do you really feel, Dan? No, I don't I, <laughs> look, I'm gonna talk A, I always tell you exactly how I really feel, Leslie. That's that's what I do. Uh, but also, it upsets me because the rest of Bupkis is actually pretty good, and at times, really good. Like, at times, in episodes two through eight, I thought, okay, this is actually really thoughtful, provocative, occasionally funny stuff that they're doing. And the first episode is puerile trash. And it's too bad, and yet I can kind of take the 35,000-foot view uh, where I can go, okay, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, okay, this is what you expect a Pete Davidson show to be. And so the first scene of the of the pilot is particularly childish, but it continues and gets more childish. The big set piece joke turns out to actually be an almost identical joke to one of the key jokes in Jury Duty. So anyone who happens to have watched both shows is going to be like, wait, what the, why are we watching this again? I'm not going to spoil it, but it isn't funny. Uh, but the point is, obviously, that you're supposed to be able to look at the first episode, which is supposed to be childish and puerile and play into your expectations. And then you get to episode eight and you see the journey of the series and you see the distance between point one and point eight. And that's what the series is. And I understand the purpose there. A uh, friend of the five, Alan Sepinwall, when he was watching the screeners for the first time, he compared it to the pilot of, of Dave and the way that... The first episode of Dave is kind of, okay, here's our our childish Little Dicky show for Little Dicky fans. And then you see the show go darker places and more mature places. It goes along. 
But what I have to say there is that the pilot of Dave, while in no way necessarily representative of the show that they eventually went on to make, it's a somewhat funny pilot. It is funny enough that while it might alienate people who are annoyed by its childishness, it's funny. The pilot of Bupkis is not funny. And it's it's too bad because subsequent episodes are sometimes really good. And also it's too bad because the second episode which brings in a lot of his uh, biography. Most of it is is well-established. You know, his father um, died in 9-11, uh, was a hero in 9-11, firefighter, I believe. And so sort of how that shaped his psyche and all of that. A lot of that is covered in the second episode, and almost certainly that could have just been the, the pilot and probably should have been. It wouldn't have given the show the same distance from childishness to where it ends up in the finale. And where it ends in the finale is, is a fairly dark place. And the arc of the season is fairly dark because it really has a lot that it wants to go into about addiction and the pull of addiction and his addiction in particular and how it ties into his loneliness, how it ties into the world in which he runs, how it ties into the people he surrounded himself with and kind of the things that in his life he sought out as distractions or alternatives, whether it's sex with one beautiful woman after another, or in the case of probably my favorite episode of the season, he he briefly decides that he wants to uh, he wants to give fatherhood a try, and he ends up uh, helping babysit a small child and taking a small child to an amusement park, which sounds like it should be a recipe for ridiculousness, and it kind of is, but it's also a recipe for some for some serious stuff, and. I kind of like the way that the show operates in that mode where a lot of it is very silly and then a lot of it is sad. And I think it has a very good sense of Pete Davidson's gifts and his limitations as an actor, which are, are both real. He's he's not the best actor in the world, but if you watch uh, um, God, whatever the the adolescence show was uh, movie was, but also King of Staten Island in particular, He's very good at playing a semi-dramatic version of himself. And King of Staten Island was great. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it. It's it's one of those Judd Apatow movies where if it had been 25 minutes shorter, I think it probably could have been genuinely great. But I, th I, th I think it's a good movie. And I think, uh, you know, I talked about... I think all movies need to be 25 minutes shorter, <laughs> but that's just my old ass being uncomfortable in a movie theater. Judd Apatow movies in particular sometimes could use a little bit more editing. Uh, but, but that had, um, you know, last week I talked about how much I loved... Uh, Bell Powley in uh, in a small light, and Bell Powley was great in King of Staten Island. Um, here, that role is played by uh, Chase Swee Wonders, who is uh, currently, according to the media, Pete Davidson's current girlfriend, uh, and who was excellent in Generation when that was on in, HBO Max. Indeed she was, and we've already, we've talked several times in the podcast, my conviction of that down the road we're going to look back at that Generation cast and uh, everyone's going to be like, ooh, it would have been nice to have had a, a show with all of those people in it on television now. How did that show only last one season? Um, so, so yeah, and, and uh, she's also the star, one of the stars of City on Fire, which I'll review next week. Um, so, yeah, very, very, very busy. Um, so, yeah, she she plays basically the same role that Belle Powley played in King of Staten Island. And, and she's really good. They have, you know, even if you didn't know that they were dating in real life, you'd go, they have a lot of chemistry. They're they're really fun to watch act together. So. Um, so, yeah. And, and the show is just peppered 
with uh with cameos and and some of them are okay it makes total sense why this person would be in this show with pete davidson so there's a a great scene in a later episode with john mulaney as himself and it, it dovetails perfectly and completely with john mulaney's netflix comedy special with uh, baby J, which premiered last week and is is really good uh as well so you know it obviously makes sense to have somebody like um <laughs> like that pop up or or Ray Romano makes sense, especially since that Brad Garrett is in several episodes. Uh, but then there are there are some really, really surprising and and silly and in some cases actually shocking cameos uh, where where you're you're trying to imagine what the conversation would have been with certain people to get them to come be in a Pete Davidson show. Uh, and I'm not going to spoil them, even though that lots of people already have and already are uh but yeah so so there are some really good episodes here uh some of them aren't really very funny some of them are extremely funny there's one episode set in in miami that has simon rex in it and and simon rex is is hilarious in this um but uh, so yeah watch bupkis uh you you all know listeners that i am a, a completist and so i would very, very rarely tell you to be the person who uh, who just skips episode one. Uh, but you might want to just skip episode one. <laughs> There's nothing in episode one that would be lost other than that Joe Pesci's character has cancer. That like uh, like there's nothing else that you wouldn't know, and you'd find that out later anyway. Or just watch episode one knowing that it gets significantly better as it goes along. So so I, I like Bupkis. At times, I really liked it. God, that first episode is is bad. Um, you mentioned that Taste the Nation with Padma Lashmi is one of my favorite shows, and it is. Uh, for people who did not watch the first season, the premise is basically Padma, who is one of TV's great and most versatile hosts, goes around the country <laughs> basically exploring different cities and their immigrant communities and delving into those immigrant communities through their food and their culture and interviewing people. Sometimes she has celebrity guests, sometimes former Top Chef contestants pop up, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. The first season was really, really good. I think the second season is even better. I, I think the second season rather comfortably establishes itself as one of the best shows on TV doing the thing it does and possibly really just one of the best shows on TV. I, I think it is. this is a an excellent and important show. Some of the places she goes this season include uh, Puerto Rico, she goes to Appalachia, she goes to Washington, D.C. and meets with um, Afghan immigrants, refugees, etc. She talks with members of the Filipino community in San Francisco. And, and along the way, sometimes there are famous people who pop up. So Yvonne Orji takes her around Houston and, and talks about Nigerian food. Sometimes it's really just chefs in the city or ordinary people in the city. Uh, and Padma is is such a very good and very game host. She learns to chop wood for some reason. Uh, at some point, she learns to butcher a pig's head. She's such a smart and funny host. She's so eager to 
uh, to play into certain double entendres and whatnot. So if you think that there's going to be an extended conversation uh, about Fufu and the discussion of how you're supposed to swallow Fufu and that she isn't going to make many, many jokes about swallowing, uh, you do not know Padma Lachmi. Uh, I think the taste... Um, uh, Taste Nation is just a great show, and uh, season two premieres on Friday. Uh, continuing along with Friday premieres, Apple TV Plus's Silo is a 10-episode. Um, it's a drama series. It's not a limited series, so it's an uh, ongoing adaptation of the sci-fi novel series by Hugh Howey. The showrunner on this is the great Graham Yost, veteran of such shows as Justified and Boomtown. And the premise of the show is is kind of a little bit dystopia by the numbers. It's set in a post-apocalyptic future um, in a vast 140-level silo that houses what seems to be the remaining survivors of humanity, Nobody knows exactly who built the silo, when they built the silo. History has become a muddle because 140 years earlier, a group of rebels basically destroyed all of the silo's records. And so nobody knows anything about the outside world or much of anything. And the first season, the first episode rather, focuses on the silo's sheriff, who's played by David Yellowo, and his wife, played by Rashida Jones. Uh, they are both excellent, but it needs to be noted they are not the stars of the show. The star of the show is Rebecca Ferguson, who plays um, a mechanic from one of the lower levels of the silo who becomes invested in a murder mystery, a mystery that might be tied to all of those big questions about what is and is not happening in the silo. Various adversaries are played by Tim Robbins, who plays uh, the head of the silo's IT department. He's sort of supercilious, but he might not be evil. He might just be bureaucratic and nerdy. And then you have Common skulking in the background as someone who's part of the judicial part of the silo. And he almost certainly is evil. Um because he has a black leather jacket and no one else in the silo does. Also because Common is not an actor with a wide range, and so he basically stands in the background making glowering expressions for 10 episodes. And that's basically his his interpretation of acting slash characterization. I think that Rebecca Ferguson is really, really good. Uh, my review up on THR notes that the accents in this series are all the hell over the map. And that's something that gets under my skin. If it gets under your skin, expect to be irritated. I am well aware that you cannot necessarily say what the accent would be in a silo housing humanity's remnants uh, and what kind of accents they would or wouldn't use. And maybe they would use uh, sort of wandering accents that become vaguely British and whatnot when they get to moments of heightened emotion. Maybe they would, but why does Common just speak with a flat American accent? I don't know, but anyway. Uh, the show kind of has problems with momentum, and, and sometimes it spins its wheels, and sometimes it takes a long time getting to places, but I think that it has some very good episodes that are are dramatic and exciting. I think that the building of the world in the silo is, is interesting. I, I think there's just good sci-fi elements to this, good hard science fiction, speculative fiction elements. It's not explicitly 
not for children, but it's probably for older children. There's there's some swearing. There's a little bit of sexuality, but not really very much. I, I just think it's it's conspicuously not YA. That's that's probably the only distinction I'm really making here is that probably the kids would be a little bit bored by it. But I think probably for grownups, it's solid, decent sci-fi. Also, always a consideration on shows like this. Is it going anywhere interesting? Is it is it going to keep you curious at the end? And the twists in the last couple episodes, I, I found them decently uh, acceptable. Like, like it, not ridiculous, not intelligence insulting, uh, and worth following up on in future episodes. So... Sometimes that's that's what you look for. And if you're a fan of this kind of thing, I think this is a decent and fairly honorable version of it without being spectacular. And my review of Class of 09 hasn't gone up yet, and I'm going to keep this a little bit oblique. It premieres uh, next Wednesday on Hulu. This is one of those FX on Hulu shows that will only air on Hulu, uh, but produced by FX, so we call it that. And also, if you look at it, it's It's got a lot of FX people associated with it. It's created by Tom Rob Smith, who did the Johnny Versace American Crime Story season. It stars Brian Tyree Henry, who, of course, was in Atlanta. It stars Kate Mara, who was in Pose and a Teacher. Lots of familiar FX faces. When what the series really and truly is, is basically a, a cable version of Quantico. Um, the ABC drama from a handful of years ago with uh, Priyanka, then Chopra, now Chopra Jonas. It's set in three different timelines. In one of them, we meet the new class at, at Quantico and, and learn their backstories and the various different motivations and secrets they, they had that brought them there. And they go through their training exercises. They learn to shoot. They learn evasive driving, blah, blah, blah. Then there's a, uh, so that's in 29, that's in 20. Oh nine. Then in 2023, which is the present, uh, we see the build up to a very bad thing, a a terrorist action that someone in our group of students slash trainees is going to get blamed for. And then in the future, 2034, the show is very invested in the idea that as a result of the attack, an AI system was allowed to basically take over the FBI and uh, that while on one hand crime has gone down, there's been a distinct loss of civil liberties. And so it concerns people. It, it while the superficial elements on the outside are FX elements, it really doesn't feel all that much like an FX show. It, it has obviously a great cast. And I think that both Brian Tyree Henry and Kate Mara are very solid. And if you're going to have what is effectively a broadcast show that moved to cable, you might as well have some very good people in the lead. It's neither of their best roles or best performances, but, but they're both good. Um, I've seen half of the show. I don't understand why uh, it's an eight episode season. Four episodes were sent to critics. I don't understand why it's being called a limited series there doesn't feel like there's any reason for that uh you know if it's a success i assume they'll find a way to do more uh but yeah through through four episodes not enough to it that's distinctive not enough to it that's fxe not enough to it that's uh that's edgy and and moving things forward but 
still watchable. Um, so, so yeah. So to recap all of those things, Bupkus now up on Peacock, uh, the pilot is awful and then it gets better. So either skip the first episode or make sure that you stick around for the second and third because it improves. Strong recommendation for Taste the Nation with Padma Lachmi. If you happen to watch the first season, then you've got two seasons plus, I believe, a Christmas special that you can catch up on. It's it's a really great show. I have to say, every single episode I've watched from season two had at least one moment that made me a little bit teary slash emotional. And uh, and yeah, I had lots of good food. And as I said, Padma Lachmi, she uh, butchers a, a pig's head. And that's kind of fun. Silo, if you... You and I have very different ideas of... Fun. You know, it's, look, I watch a lot of things and I kind of I kind of draw the line in my programming in any given week between whether or not the show I'm watching has Padma Lachmi uh, butchering a pig's head and whether it doesn't. And yeah, fun for me is Max Muncy hitting a walk off Grand Slam. OK, well, guess what? Uh, he does not do that in Taste the Nation with Padma Lachmi. <laughs> so. So, yeah, uh, nor does he do it in Silo, which um, which is Apple TV Plus premiering on Friday. Uh, decent hard sci-fi, definite focus problems, uh, definitely lots of the people who you want to get emotionally involved in in the first couple episodes are not actually the stars of the show. And so be aware that uh, that, yeah, that's a thing. And Class of 09 is Quantico for FX. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. You can always come see us on Twitter. She's at Snooted, as she already told you once this podcast. I'm at The Fine Print. Uh, as Leslie mentioned, if you have anything strike-related that you want to talk to her about, she's there and has a microphone ready for you, so be in touch with her. Um, I'm probably not, but, you know, uh, whatever. That's fine. <laughs> If you have questions, I, don't, I wonder what would happen if you came out and to do interviews with me, Dan. I mean, if, if people would want to talk to you because you they you you wrote a, wrote a kind review of their show, or if they wouldn't, I, I assume the answer would be some yes and some no. Some uh, no, yeah, and that's that's fine. I I assume there would be people who would absolutely be ha happy to talk to me, and I am supportive of their cause, so I don't think anyone would begrudge my presence in any way. But you're going to be. On the line, I probably will not. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, we 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 did kind of answer at least one this week. Someone asked about the Tonys, and 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 as we said, they're ongoing until they're not. Uh, but yes, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can reach us at TV's Top Five at thr.com. That's TV's Top Five, the numeral five at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.